0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. I, uh, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us individually, um, in a way that, uh, accurately reflects your love for us, your plan for us, and uh, our way we should look upon your son and what happened on the cross. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a timer. This is good. Um, this is a, well, let, me, let me just put it this way. I'm a, this past Wednesday, I meet with a guy that we're accountable to each other. And um, we sit down, we're eating breakfast, and he says, you'd never believe what happened. My wife comes up to me, and she says, i got to show you something I found in the Bible. And he goes, really? Well, tell me what it is. And she goes, can you believe what I found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 5, that this is really in the Bible? To which Joe responds, well, they never preach this in church. And he looks at me, and I got a big grin on my face. And he goes, what's so funny? I said, unless you're coming to Doxa this Saturday. Uh, It it was completely bizarre how that played out. What are the chances or the likelihood of that discussion taking place a couple days ago? I want to stop and open up with a core belief that we have in Doxa, that we believe that, that God sent his son, blameless, without fault, born sinless, to live a sinless life and to be crucified unjustly as a sacrificial death for our sin. And that through that, through faith in Christ, I receive um, exoneration, complete exoneration from my sin when I come before a holy God on judgment day. Period. Period. That needs to be made real clear, especially if somebody's sitting here who who maybe has not experienced the new birth, because this is a passage, literally, that comes like a meteorite out of left field. It is a passage that I would never have chosen, (laughs) never, never have chosen. And it was funny, because Randy, a couple weeks ago, when we had this conversation, he goes, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, nothing, much to my fault. And he says, well, you want to teach? And I said, what's the passage? And he says, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. And I'm like, the 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 5? Usually I go thumb through the Bible and find out where I'm going. No. No, I know it. I've been scarred by it. Um, So having said that, I'm going to give Randy my disclaimer now. Um, The views expressed, uh, I'm reading this verbatim, by the way, and there's a reason for this. The views expressed by me. Uh, may have absolutely nothing to do with the beliefs and doctrines held by the DOCSA church and are my own opinions and viewpoints, okay, period. So when, Randy, you get a call from the EFC, uh, EFCA headquarters Monday saying, what is this heresy? You could say, well, did you get the, doc- the, the disclaimer in the beginning? Um, you know, we're covering a passage that to me is the pinnacle of depravity of the church. And, and Paul addresses it with a sledgehammer. I mean, that's really the only way I can put it into words. That he doesn't ask questions. There's not a little, let's see if this brother is going to be repentant. It's pull out the gun, pulls the trigger, and says, I hope that figured it out. I mean, literally, theologically. Um, And we're going to break it down. But let me ask this in opening. Um, If Paul showed up at our church, what issues would he take up with us? When I say issues, he would say there are things happening here that are not bringing honor and glory to the person of Christ, that that are not bearing witness to our community, that we serve a risen Savior, a holy God, a righteous God. Where are we falling below those standards? And if Paul had to take us out back by the woodshed, would it be a 10-minute meeting, a one-hour meeting, or a whole-day meeting? Just a thought. Let me ask another question. Where are we discounting God's holiness and Jesus' grace in our walk with the Lord? Let me say that again. Where are we discounting God's holiness and Jesus' grace in our walk with the Lord? Um, there was a term in the Old Testament that was used a lot. Um, and it was in reference to um, God's view of the, uh, the 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 Israelites' belligerence toward him, and and the term was uh, having a stiff neck. Um, and the, and the stiff neck is I don't I don't even I've had it. That's a, I don't want to hear it. And that's kind of denotes that term that when when God would come to them and they are cast them off, get them off. I don't want to hear from it. And that was the expression. And it's a brutal expression. My caption, my title for this lesson is "Breaking a Stiff Neck." And, and that's, again, just to kind of give you a little bit of a heads up. Um, Exodus 33, 5 tells us, For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. For a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. That, that's a pretty stern statement. So where is it that our necks have become stiff toward God? And it's not, and I'll say this too, um, This is something that, to me, seems more apparent in people who've been believers for a period of time. A new believer on fire for Christ doesn't have that appearance of a stiff neck in my observations often. They may have bad doctrine. They may not know what they're doing, but they love the Lord. They've been redeemed, and they know they have eternal salvation, and they're just rejoicing in it. If God says, jump, they say, how high? But as a Christian, five or ten years later, you're living in your own smugness and your self-righteousness. Uh, and, and you get to a place where you can grow cold in your heart. That's a horrifying thought. Um, that's why when I was asked to teach this, uh, I will say this, it, it, I spent more time looking at myself, and the more time I spent looking at myself, the sicker and the more disgusted I became with myself. That's why I don't sign up for these passages, because I know where the truck is coming. I've seen the truck in the past. And so when you hear it beeping coming in my direction, I'm not happy about doing that. So let, let's pick up. Um, Paul already, list, uh, a couple things, just a little bit of backdrop here. We're in the middle of what, what I call the woodshed beating already. Uh, Paul has the Corinthians. They're already out back by the woodshed. Um, last week, it ended off with this. Uh, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and he will find not the talk of the arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? That's a nice threat, isn't it? It's one or the other. There's no middle of the road here. Um, so that's where we pick, pick up from last week. And, and to just kind of cue you in for next week, it picks up with the words, your boasting is not good. So again, it's, we're, we're in a place like the first three chapters of Romans, where you get pulverized with nothing but the depravity and sinfulness of man. Um, so don't be shocked on my news with what I bring to you today. Um, Jamin and I talked about hymns. This is another, this is kind of funny, but it's accurate. Jamin's like, well, what kind of hymns do you think you'd like? And I said, how about ACDC's Highway to Hell? I mean, that, that again kind of puts this passage in context. So I, I don't mean to be facetious, but that was literally the first thought that comes to my mind. Um, so I'll say it That's uh, for what it's worth. So we, we have two tracks that we're going to run down today, and one is concerning the immoral brother. And it seems truthfully that less attention is given to him, although the attention given is, ex- is extreme. But then on the other track, we have the, the address to the church members who not only condone the Immoral Brothers' behavior, but appear to have enthusiastically endorsed this behavior in some sense. Um, theologically, this passage is heavily disputed. And what I mean by that is that there's lots of people who've said lots of things, and there's not a lot of consensus there. I think, and and I go, and I do this, and this is the way I look at God's word. I try to, at the end of the day, take a black-letter approach. And I I just leave it there. Um, I'm seeing, as as I study scripture more and more, I see more opinions drawn about more places in scripture than I think is necessary. And, and it tends to complicate what we're looking at. It also serves to undermine every passage because if I'm in a mentality of scrutinizing every word and picking it apart 14 times, when I stumble across the blatant statements of truth, I tend to, uh, I'll tend to break them down or muddy the water with what God made real simple. So having said that, let's pick up reading Corinthians 5, chapter 1. It is, and I'm going to break this through slowly. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind is, of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. That's pretty bad, by the way. For a man has his father's wife. So obviously something came back to Paul where he caught wind of this, and it came from a reliable source because he's giving it the time and tension in this letter. Um, it's most likely the man is having sexual relations with his stepmother, thus the term father's wife, not mother. Um, the Greek... The Greek wording here also indicates that the son and the stepmother are cohabitating. Now, under Roman law, this would clearly be prohibited. But if the father was dead, it would have been condoned. So Roman Roman law said, if your father's alive and you're with his wife, that's not good. We won't condone it. But if father's dead and you're hanging out with her, we'll, we'll condone it. What seems to have exacerbated this is it appears the father's alive, or at least the consensus from people looking at this, the father's alive... And it's probably all happening under the same roof. And that's cause to blow a gasket. At least Paul does. Um, Paul brings the rebuke up from Deuteronomy 27.20, which says, Cursed be anyone who who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Um, And the curse really, if you go through Deuteronomy, all of these curses result in two things. One is exclusion from within the, the body of believers... Uh, typically in the Old Testament, the Hebrew community, which would be, um, which would dissociate you from everything that you claim to give you a sense of identity and value, being cast out of the Hebrew community, and the second thing is physical destruction. The the culmination of this sin repeatedly was that, that, that God said, "I'll turn you over to your enemies, or I'll destroy the body. It's that's fine with me." Um, and and but the motivation there is always to bring about repentance, to restore. And that is lacking in this passage today, which is, again, very uncomfortable. Um, verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you, rather, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So the question immediately becomes, who is the you that he's calling arrogant? And, and it opens up. Uh, it's the church. Um, Paul opens up chapter 1 saying greetings to the church of God that is in Corinth. The U is clearly referenced to church members. It is not toward this immoral brother. So how does Paul classify these members? And, and the word is brutal. It's arrogant. Um, there's in, the, in, the, in the NIV it's proud or puffed up in the New King James Version. I went and consulted with Webster's. Arrogant is this, having the insulting attitude of people who believe they are better, smarter, or more important than other people. Disposed to exaggerate one's own worth or importance, often by an overbearing manner. That's brutal. Um, and showing an offensive attitude of superiority. And that's how Paul classifies these people. Um, one commentary noted the Corinthians took pride in the, in the incestuous man's sin as an expression of their Christian liberty. And I'm not sure. It's interesting when you hear these things because initially um, they didn't have the benefit of the whole New Testament. And I'm going to get to that. So they're thinking, I'm wholly liberated from my sin, past, present, and future. And sadly, that can give somebody who's misinformed license to gratuitously sin to say it's covered anyway. Um, they didn't have the book of Acts, chapter fifteen, twenty, to tell them um, to refrain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled or from blood. You see, those were things that as this church is unfolding, they're establishing doctrine. So this, these poor guys don't have a fallback letter on. They weren't CC'd with the book of Acts and the book of Romans and Timothy and Thessalonians. They weren't getting that information at this time. So, and I shouldn't say that universally, but generally speaking, those earlier churches clearly didn't have that benefit. Um, they didn't have the benefit of First Thessalonians 4, 3, where Paul tells the church, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, from Romans thirteen thirteen, where Paul reminds them, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. So you could actually say Corinthians weren't as bad because Paul had to remind the Romans not to engage in orgies. I mean, where do you go with that? That's pretty extreme saying, well, look out for this. This isn't a good idea. So again, and I don't mean to be facetious, but you, you don't have the benefit of having God's word outlined in a manner where we do today to systematically say, wholly unacceptable, wrong. And no debate, no dispute, no issue. Um, So having said that, it seems Paul had to remind all of the churches to steer clear of the issue of sexual immorality. And boy, that's just a huge statement in and of itself. Um, And Paul will get to that with these guys shortly in chapter 6, verse 18, where he tells them, flee from sexual immorality. Um, another thought here might have been that the immoral brother came from a family of great wealth. And, and this would have posed especially a big problem. And, and I think in our current age, we, well, maybe this will do it. If we at DOXA had somebody show up here in our midst who is worth $10 billion, would we have a propensity to treat them differently? Would we have a propensity to say, well, yeah, he made his money and ill gotten gain, but we really shouldn't take him to the woodshed over this. We, we would like him to be a part of this body. We'd like to warm him in and welcome him. Would we have a potential or a propensity to compromise, to allow him to remain in our midst and be a part of this body? Ten billion with a B. That's money that most of us have no grasp of what it could influence if placed at our disposal would that make us change or compromise in some manner? Now, compound that by extracting from our legal system any real laws that would have held that person accountable. Even in this day and age, we have, to some degree, those laws that would have curtailed this behavior. But in in this day and age, they would have owned the court system. They would have had carte blanche-free reign as to what they want to do and get away with it. And at that point, imagine if you've got that person sitting in your church and they engage in some type of behavior. What is the propensity to let it slide? Now I'm going to throw another twist that I didn't see in commentaries, but I think about it practically as a man. Imagine also that the more Moral brother is really good-looking, he's very charismatic, and his stepfather's wife is a bombshell that everybody's envious that he has. And now add in the money factor. And can you see how a group of people, immature in their faith, could have egged this guy on or complimented him in some manner that is wholly inappropriate biblically. When well, you read this passage initially, you think, how could you have done this? But you start adding in variables that really change how we would have addressed it in our culture, and you can see where compromise has the potential to come in. So do we do this in our churches today? Do we cater to the wealthy or the political elite um, when their behavior is poor? Do we overlook, offend, do, do we avoid offending them in any manner in order to keep them within our presence. And sadly, I'll say this in the South, that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. I love what Tony Evans said. A person in his church said, well, I'll take my checkbook and go. And he says, you and your checkbook perish. It's a pretty brutal statement to give to somebody. Um, so what about that? Let's say, let's take it a step further also. That person's in our midst and they've made their money through what we would classify as some type of ill-gotten gain. And I don't mean, I couldn't think of something that was really analogous, but I'll, I'll say this. Let's say they um, distribute alcohol to the Grand Strand. And you say, well, alcohol socially used. Is acceptable? Yeah, for probably about 10% of the people. But the other 90% wind up doing what with it? Indulging overly in it. Do we say, well, that's fine with me. I'm cool with that if that's how you made your money and you support us? And I'm not saying right or wrong, but I'm saying, do you see all of a sudden how some of their behavior issues could be, become... Fine lines for whether we address it or not. And if it's that fine line and they're very wealthy, what is our immediate propensity to do? To drop it and walk away. See, if it were somebody else of a lower standing, sadly, what would, we, would we say something? Probably. And that illustrates the compromise that takes place when we get stuck in those situations. Second Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5:2, Paul says, Ought you not rather to mourn? And what he's basically saying about their behavior, he says, this should cause you grief, your behavior. Rather than giving this immoral brother an attaboy, you guys should should be grieved. The the grief should stem from the literal loss of their immoral brother, their church community's been defiled, their church is impaired in their witness, and they brought about dishonor to God in the name of Christ. You should be grieved over this. Let me give you just a principle here. Prideful arrogance always results in spiritual devastation. Prideful arrogance always results in spiritual devastation. And this is really the core of of today, where I'm going and how I'm going to take you home with it. Prideful, did I say prideful arrogance? I wrote prideful ignorance. You could use it either way. I wrote prideful ignorance. I'm sorry about that. Prideful ignorance always results in spiritual devastation. Because, because with that pride, um, we're blinded. And with that resulting blindness, what happens? We're wholly devastated. I was in a BSF class years ago, and one of the members, of the group member, um, Todd, friend of mine, wound up becoming a great friend, by the way. He's reading a question, and he answers it, and he says, I'm not smart enough to take care of myself. I don't know if I brought this up in the past. And I remember immediately thinking, dope. Are you an idiot? And I left it at that. Prideful ignorance. But you should probably put it in caps with my name under it. And so that week as I'm driving down the road, you know, the, the, the acknowledgement of a reality, the questioning came to me. Who's allowing the, the air to flow in and out of your lungs? Drive a little further down the road, who's allowing your heart to beat? Who's protecting you from the oncoming car? Who's placed a hedge of protection about your household? Who brings the work into your office? Who gave you the skill and the capacity to grasp what you do for a living and the ability to follow through where it becomes gainful and you have fruit as a result of that? Idiot. No, he didn't say idiot. But that's, you know, and by the end of that week, I had been so overwhelmingly convicted in my prideful ignorance that I said, I can't take care of myself. I'm too stupid to do that. And that's really the truth. If you extract God's grace from my life, Dust is what remains in my presence. Dust. So, at, at the, at the, at, at really and at the, the core of this prideful ignorance is a stiff neck. So I'm saying, I don't need to know this. I don't need to figure this out. I'm fine. on my. It is my belligerence turning my back on God saying, I got it. Don't worry about me. And that's, a, that's just a, a, a brutal thought as I was going through this that came to me. So what is the solution for the immoral brother? Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2, Paul's solution to the immoral brother, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And this is disconcerting because there's no grace in this passage. None. It's not like, oh, let's restore them. Nothing. Get rid of them. And it's going to get worse, by the way. Because we're dealing with intentional sinful behavior of the individual and people who have appeared to endorse and boasted about the behavior, although even not directly engaging in such behavior. Paul's solution is to get rid of the guy, and the getting rid of is permanent. That's, uh, that appears inconsistent with what's in the New Testament throughout the balance of the book. Um, other than the details we get in verse 5, the balance of the discussion, once again, is directed toward the members of the church. Um, some have stated that the next three verses, 3, 4, and 5, are the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. So I'd like to thank you again, Randy. I appreciate that. Uh, Doubling up my time in preparation. And I did. I spent a lot more time than I usually do just because I'm not going to stand up here if I I don't have a passing notion of what this is about or at least how to argue a position in terms of trying to explain this. Um, Fortunately, the central passage, the message, the message is clear. The Corinthian church is to gather with Paul's spirit in Christ, with Christ's power, and expel the immoral brother. That's the gist of this. There's your theology here. Now, when you get into the details, it becomes a little messy. But that's the gist of it. Guys corrupt. You've condoned it. Get rid of them. End of discussion. So Paul gives the basis for his judgment upon the memorial brother um, as if he were already present. And part of this is that if, you're, if you become one in the body of Christ, it is not your presence in spirit ...with others as they go about their business? Are we not all collectively and ...are we not unified all together as one body? And what Paul simply says is... ...I'm with you in spirit and I've cast judgment. And so when you gather, know that I'm in spirit... ...with with having cast this judgment... ...and you can impose it. And that's basically um, what happens. Did you pick up that there was no church vote... ...on the matter? Um, No calling of the elders together to address the matter... ...to see if there's a place to go? Uh, No polling to see if the judgment rendered... ...was just and reasonable i just make a quick side note. There's much less democracy in the Bible than there is in most churches, and I would probably say even Doxa for that matter. Uh, I've looked at the paperwork. Paul, Paul did not say... Paul lays the law down and says, done, live with it. But if you have the authority of a holy God backing you, what more is necessary? And it's just a question. What about now, when, when you talk about this, the, the interaction with this brother, it looks like, I'm just going to say it looks like, The balance of addressing sinful men is jettisoned from the New Testament in this passage. Matthew uh, 18, 15 through 17 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault uh, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to him, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, uh, let him be... To you as a Gentile or a tax collector. I always think about Jesus saying that. Looking at Matthew going sorry sorry. It's okay. I mean just just poor Matthew. But there's your protocol for dealing with this guy. Any of that implemented? Nope. Let's back it up a little more. Luke 17 3 through 4 says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins rebuke him. And if he repents forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day. And turns to you seven times saying. I repent. You must forgive him. What about Paul Galatians 6. Brother if anyone is caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. So where did all that go? It's nowhere here. It's missing. Looks like Paul just basically shoots the sinner there on the spot and moves on. So he directs the church how to deal with this. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan. I put a little stamp on him, Satan, no no first class postage to hell. Um, This is really, you know, I, I struggle here. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And if you look at that, it looks pretty clear. Well, is Satan evil? We can't debate Satan, right? Is anyone going to say it's not Satan? When you say the flesh, could it be the old man or the new man or is it his physical body? And clearly when you see so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, it sounds like this guy has salvation, which indicates he is actually saved engaging in this behavior. There are a handful of views on this, hand him over to Satan. There's there's a non-physical death view where some have stated simply that by excluding him from the body of believers, it would be to hand him over to Satan or the world, who is Satan having dominion over the world. The motivation would again bring, bring about godly repentance. They've said the term flesh is referencing to the old man, so that this old man would be done away with, so that this new man in Christ would be here, and then he could be restored to you guys and joined back with him. Um, there's support for this, um, second Corinthians two, five through 11. This is the next book of Corinthians. Let me read this. And, And this me personally is my hope. Paul is writing a second letter to the Corinthians and he says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of us for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, and you could say previously, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So Paul's saying, if you draw a correlation with this to the other passage, he's saying, well, this brutal language in chapter five, in the prior letter, see if you're really going to man up. That's what he's saying here. To know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone. Who you forgive, I also forgive." So he's saying then again, that my judgment bled into your judgment, and your forgiveness will bleed into my forgiveness, so it becomes reciprocal. Um, and anyone you forgive, I forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, uh, indeed let me be sure I'm getting this what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of His dealings. So is there, there's nothing unwaveringly that says this is the same guy, but it seems that there's an inference you can draw to tie the two together. Another non-death view scripture states, deliver the man to be Satan for destruction of the flesh, and the question is this, does Satan have domain over the death of any human being, let alone this guy? Does Satan dictate when he can take a life? And the answer is absolutely not, that, that God is the author of all life and the taker of all life. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, meaning that God was totally sovereign over the start and the end. Therefore, Satan has no authority here. So we can't be talking about Satan actually physically killing this guy because that would be God's domain. Now, you could argue it another way by saying, Well, God is letting Satan have his way as he did with Job. So we're letting him fulfill God's plan there. But some have argued nonetheless to support that view. Um, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This is amazing. I couldn't believe that I stumbled across this. Um, It says this 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I didn't even know there was another passage in the Bible, of Paul handing somebody over to Satan, obviously. We have two, at least. Um, so you have this handing over to Satan to accomplish a purpose, and in this place, it's not death, but to train that they may learn. So you could argue Again, that this is more of a similar situation like this. Although Timothy says that they may learn not to blaspheme, and Corinthians says, gonna kill him. There's the difference. Job versus the immoral brother, in Job 1, verses 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. It picks up Job 2, 4 through 6. Then Satan answered, the Lord said, skin for sin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So it seems like there might be some turning over to Satan and Job versus this immoral brother. But the context is totally the opposite. Um, Job is righteous and being tested versus the immoral brother being immoral and being condemned. Um, Scripture also doesn't say that Job was turned over to Satan to be killed. The immoral brother was. Only similarities there, really, Satan is allowed to work within the confines of God's plan. That God has a good as his goal in both plans. And Job is proven faithful. And the immoral brother is still saved on the judgment day. So you can argue some things around this, saying basically there are parallels the, the argument for the actual physical death view, um, one could argue that Timothy passage said they're going to teach them something and this is going to kill the guy. So clearly there is um, a, a different context there. The Greek word for destruction here is used elsewhere, and I'm not going to give you the sites. but if you look up destruction, pretty much in the New Testament, it means destroyed the human being. So it's hard to misconstrue the depth of what that word is when it says that Satan will destroy the body. Um, consistently in the Old Testament with this type of behavior, death would be the result of it. That would be the consequence, that you've engaged in this type of behavior and you were killed as a result of it. Um, you say, well, this is the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and that hellfire and brimstone of the Old Testament really hasn't bled over to the New Testament because now we're covered in Christ, right? Right? He doesn't judge us here and now on the earth and just strike you dead. Bam, does he? Occasionally. Sadly, it's in the New Testament too. Acts 5, 1 through 11, there was a story of Ananias and Sapphira, and they sell a piece of property, and then they kept a little bit of the money. And and Ananias goes before um, the disciples, and he gives them part of the money. And because he didn't give all of it, he lied about it. Boom, strikes him dead, drops dead. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose, wrapped him up, and carried him off and buried him. A couple minutes later, guess what happens? His wife comes in and pulls the same game. And it concludes, when the young man came in, they found her dead. And they carried her off and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church. Big words. Those are big words. Because it seems like that wiggle room that we're just scot-free under Christ, maybe it's not accurate, is it? Or would you start to look at that and question that what's up with that? You know, if, if you read the words, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it's, to me, I look at that and I go, okay. Uh, best illustration I can give you. If you are the mob boss and I am the hitman, you tell me you're going to set up a meeting whereby a particular individual is coming to be present, and then you tell me to destroy the flesh, I will assume that being a hitman, you want me to kill him, right? Hitman doesn't break legs, he kills people. Hitman, very specific. Satan is the father of, a li- father of lies, and a starts with an M, murder. Murder, the author of death. So this guy handed over to be killed. And it's obvious, which is really kind of disconcerting, that the Immoral Brother is a believer. And I don't think there's a lot of dispute there because this guy's talking about, so that on the day of the Lord, he'll be saved. Day of the Lord being that judgment day. Um, Which again, kind of comes back toward us. I would prefer to take the non-death view personally. Because it lets me sleep better at night. It lets me mitigate the holiness of God. It lets me soft pedal my own sin. This passage paints a picture of a God who is unsympathetic unsympathetic to sin, to intentional sin. It appears the death sentence given is penal, meaning to punish, not restorative. He's saying, I, I, there's not hope of, of this guy having a second chance. It's to kill him and we're done. Not only is God unsympathetic to intentional sin, it, it indicates he has no tolerance for it. It's like God saying, if you are saved in a bad, bad witness, he would prefer to kill you and remove the opportunity for us to muddy his name. I mean, if you look at this, the black letters, I mean, that's where, where you wind up with this. One commentary summed it up perfectly. It said this, fleshly suffering and death should be understood as a means of arresting the errant Corinthians sinful activities. Let me say that again. Fleshly suffering and death should be understood as a means of arresting the errant Corinthians sinful activities. So I ask this question, is it any different for us? And it's just a question. (laughs) It's a question that you lay awake at night. And that rings through your head. That, That leaves me a little Hard to find sleep. So, so don't take this as universal truth. I'm just saying, this, take this as a piece of chunk in God's word that we have to live with and acknowledge. Do we bask in the grace of Calvary? Absolutely. But it seems like there's something, that there's a threshold that gets crossed here with us before God for behavior that he says, I'm not going to buy it. And where is that line drawn? And that's the dis- disconcerting question to me. Let me say this. There's a difference between having sin. Uh, there's a difference between sin having consequences and sin being purged when, become, when, when coming before a holy God. On the, on the beginning of the scale of our sin bringing about a consequence of death. If we smoke, drink too much, overeat, lack care for our bodies. Is that sin? Absolutely. Does it bring about our death? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not a question, does our sin have a a play with our physical existence? It absolutely does. That's a fact. That's not a disputable matter. Now, are there exceptions to that again? Absolutely. You see the 102-year-old lady smoking Marlboro's and saying, well, the key is Marlboro's and, you know, good food or something. And you see it. But that's that's not the law of averages. The norm is, you know, take care of yourself. It affects the longevity of your life. Sorry. And, and that, that sin comes from a community, can come from a heredity, or can come from personal behavior, sadly. Let me take this a step further. Would God take our life, even if saved, if we persist in a course of overt or unrepentant sinful behavior? Just a question. Would God take our life, even if saved, if we persist in a course of overt or unrepentant sinful behavior? Would he actually do this? And that's the question that comes. That's allowed to be present when you read this passage. That's a fact that we kind of have to live with if you look at this. This turns a loving God into a God who is to be truly feared. And how many of us like living with fear? That's the problem. It's a huge problem. It makes us uncomfortable. Sorry. This turns a loving God into a God to be truly feared. This also, in a, in, a, in a tenuous sense, takes on what I would call a reverse, a reverse works-based theology, meaning don't be too bad or you'll have consequences. You know, there, there has to be some type of behavior, and if the behavior is really that bad, it will attach a consequence, which, again, is never, never a happy conversation. So, Randy, you get this because you pawned it off on me. Let me ask some questions in closing. Do we use Jesus' grace to justify bad behavior? We chalk it up as, what do you expect? I'm just a sinner. Do we use Jesus' grace to obliterate any sense of true repentance for our own sinful conduct? Let me say that again. Do we use Jesus' grace to obliterate any sense of true repentance from our own sinful conduct? Do we live with the mentality that Jesus has it covered? How often, how often do we encounter somebody in our churches who, are, who they are overcome by grief and racked with remorse? And I'll say this. I'm not boasting. I was at a marriage retreat with my wife um, up at Ridgecrest a handful of years back, and, and I had this sense of my unworthiness and just started sobbing. I mean, like, drooling snot everywhere, sobbing, like, could not stop because I had this picture in my mind that everything... That my, my capacity to stand tall, to put my hands in my pocket came exclusively by his favor. And that I was wholly unworthy. And when I, I didn't just sniffle and cry for a couple minutes. It was more like 10, 15 minutes of just, and after a while I was just shaking, just, just racked in grief. And it wasn't even over my sin, it was how much I've just been given by his free measure. Where is that today in our church? Where? Do we use Jesus' grace to mute the Holy Spirit's call to true holiness? Do we use Jesus' grace and being intentional in our ignorance, do we stumble along with a reckless disregard for our own sinful behavior or how our actions affect others? I'm doing pretty good. Page left. Do we get it that every sin we commit causes suffering? Do we get that statement? That every sin we commit causes suffering? Do we use Jesus' grace to justify spiritual laziness and a refusal to be intentional, committed, and disciplined in our prayer time with our spouse, with our children, and in our own quiet time? I used to pray with my kids on my knees. I'm done in a year. This past week I got on my knees with my kids. It was a shocking picture of how spiritually flabby I have become as a 20-year-old Christian. Just a scathing rebuke I received. Because if I can't get on my knees with my kids, what am I saying about the grace that they're going to need when they go out in this real world? Oh, Jesus got it. It's his grace. Everything is fine. A little arrogant, a little stiff-necked, a little haughty, perhaps, in my view of a holy God. Who lets me take the breath in and out of his own good favor that's how I didn't I didn't want to do this do we use Jesus grace to allow us to remove any sense of urgency for the lost once we are truly saved well I, at least I'm saved I go to sleep on, the, on that burning passion for the lost do we use Jesus grace to allow us to ignore the written words of this book have we ever stated that our, uh, this about the, our walk with the Lord, I know I should, but? I know I should, but? I wonder if a believer came in here and said, I know I should, but, and lightning struck down and fried the guy to a singe. How quickly the next week would be followed by a sense of, "but's not going to work very well for me anymore. Because that's what happened to the people in Acts. A fear of the Lord came over the whole congregation. Yeah, wake up, hello, ding, bells rung. Time to wake up spiritually. That's that's the way I see this passage. Knowing that sin is not graded on a curve, how different is it when I know the right thing to do and I ignore it? Is this not intentional belligerence in the sight of God? How different am I from the immoral brother in the final analysis? And that's the painful question. How different am, am I? Have you ever had a call from a brother or sister in Christ, they call you and and you see their number come up on your phone and you press deny call? Have you ever done that? Am I not telling God I don't care to follow his lead? So when it comes to sin, is it any difference when you press the deny call button than committing some other form of a more apparent sin? Think about this. If I were God, I'd send you, and you used my son's suffering to justify your spiritual recklessness, I might reconsider taking you to the woodshed and making an example of you just to restore a sense of reverence for what my son did for you. That's a brutal thought. And are we not created in his image? Do those thoughts not parallel if my child made a great sacrifice for you to bless you and help you and you disregarded it, I guarantee a response would come from me about your behavior. And I'm not saying this is universal truth. This is just what was placed on my heart. It makes me very uneasy when I read passages like this. I get the feeling that God still has a limited tolerance for sin. And that a shock. Where are we discounting God's holiness and Jesus' grace? Where is my walk with the Lord where my neck has become stiff? Maybe as we head toward communion this morning, we can reflect and think about that. Let me pray. Father, I, um, I pray you'll forgive me if I'm misrepresenting your word. Um, I, I don't ask for forgiveness uh, for feeling um, wholly convicted. And if somebody's standing with me tonight, this morning, and... Uh, It's a uh, painful reality to acknowledge. I I pray that so be it. So be it. Lord, just this morning, as we come to the table, I I pray um, that we would know the depth of our sin, but of the goodness of your favor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today.